Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. My guest today is Steve Lesgarden of Blake Real Estate. Steve, a chief executive officer and oversees management of the Blake Real Estate operations in Washington, D.C. Steve has been with Blake for 47 years, coming from his undergraduate degree at George Washington University. Steve has a multifaceted background doing practically every type of real estate discipline you can do for office buildings, including vertical integration of the company into various services provided for their many tenants in their portfolio in D.C., as well as third-party management work. Steve is uh, very well credentialed, and I've known him for 25 of those 47 years. He and I have done several transactions together, and I've enjoyed working with him over the years. So without further ado, here is Steve Lusgarden. Thank you for joining me today. Wanted to talk a little bit about your family background and what you've accomplished over your career. So let me just start right out and tell me, where were you born and where were you raised? I was born in uh, New York City. My early childhood, I was in the Bronx. I lived there until my father passed away when I was seven. My mother remarried and we moved from the Bronx to Yonkers, New York. And I lived there until I was 17. Originally, obviously, uh, in the Bronx, I went to public school there. And uh, the path that I had there was one where I thought I would move forward and go to the Bronx High School of Science. And when I was a young man, even at the age of seven, which surprised my wife this morning when I told her I was going to meet with you, that I thought I wanted to be an electrical engineer. What was your relationship like with your, uh, your stepfather and your mother? With my mother, she was a tough lady. She was 32 years old with two young children as a, as a single mom, had to go to work. So we used to go to my grandmother's who lived a block away to eat and after school. And uh, she had a tough and very loyal to her two sons. My stepfather was probably not the kind of father that everybody envisioned that they would love to have. So going away to college was terrific. When my father passed away, he left my brother and I each $10,000, which is how we were able to each go to college. Without that, I'm not quite sure what we would have done. So George Washington University was the ideal choice for me. So you wanted to come to Washington? Uh, I did want to go to Washington. I I couldn't decide between the Ra-Ra schools and GW, but some of my applications and helped decide that. (laughs) It was a great school. I'd say for the first two years, I had a terrific time, probably too terrific, (laughs) and my grades reflected it. I did not have a great interest in... What, what the, years were this? Was it I started college in 1967, and I would say the 
rigmarole that they put you through the first two years of college where you don't have a choice of what you're taking really did not interest me. And my grades reflected that. And then the next two years, maybe even a little bit more than the next two years, when I got into the business part of it, I did extremely well and found it very interesting. Is that what your degree was in? My degree was in finance uh, and accounting. And so were the social things going on at that time have any influence on your life at that that moment? I would say I was... Yeah, I would say I was extremely liberal, to say the least, and went through the riots here and all the marches and everything else that everybody did back in the 60s. I think it was a nice experience going through that. I ran out of money and the bank refused to lend me any more money by 1971. So actually, that's how I ended up at Blake. So I ended up taking a job at Blake Real Estate during the day which was very close to GW, and I switched to night school in the end. This is your senior year at college? uh, My post-senior year. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Ended up graduating instead of June of 71. I graduated in December of 71, and uh, I would work here during the day. What did you do for Blake at the time? I I started here as a leasing agent. Then I would go to school at night. The original intent, I had met a person who eventually I married, by then, and it was, you know, take this job temporarily. She would be graduating in May, June of 72, and then we would decide where we wanted to live, and I could decide what I wanted to do for a living. And I guess I still haven't decided where I want to live and (laughs) what I want to do for a living because I'm still at play. The real estate department here and the company was very different. In those days, the real estate group, the leasing group was... I think three or four people in the property management group. Staff in-house was three or four people. And the main focus here was construction. Shortly after I arrived here, Blake got its first nine-figure contract, which was Walter Reed Hospital. And that's when Blake was first taking off. As a matter of fact, it had a joint venture the completion bond in those days because it didn't have the assets to even put up the completion bond. Really, the main focus for many years in the beginning when I was here was construction. Mm -hmm. And some of the focus that they put me on was leasing a building that we were building for uh, tower construction in those days. So I guess my learning curve was don't screw up our buildings. Go lease Tower Constructions Building at 1828 L Street. So you were doing third-party leasing even at that time? I did some with ours, but the one building that had a large vacancy was 1828 L Street. We were building it. And that was sort of a good experience because I got to see a building that was being constructed. I got to see the pieces and started understanding a little bit about construction, bearing in mind that I didn't have an architecture background, I didn't have a construction background, Mm -hmm. I didn't have an engineering background. So as I was leasing things, I would get to work earlier and earlier in the day so that I could then see how the pieces went together to construct what it was that I was leasing. So did you dig in on your own, kind of dig information out? I mean, were you really yes. curious about I, I wasn't told to do that, but I would get to the building at 6 o'clock in the morning or 5.30 in the morning, and I would meet with the job superintendent, 
And I would start asking, what's this piece? What's this piece? I guess a story that I've told often when I've given some speeches around town, one of the first times that I showed space in the building, a very seasoned leasing agent came along and he brought some people in who wanted to see five or 10,000 square feet. And he asked me whether or not the space that I was showing him had a wet stack in it. And not knowing what a wet stack was, I said, well, let me ask you something. Did the last building that you look at have a wet stack? And he said, yes. And I said, well, then we must have a wet stack also. And then I went running back and asked somebody, what's a wet stack? When I went back to the uh, office <laughs> and I was very happy that I said that we, we had a wet stack. So oftentimes you have to step out a little bit on the line yeah, and we, sometimes pull back if you can. Yeah, so we did. Sonny Abramson in those days had a certain economic threshold that he was looking for. Uh, Sonny Abramson, of course, is the it's principal of tower companies. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to do, I was always competitive in sports. So my goal was always to bring in leases in those days at higher rents per square foot than what Sonny was looking for. And I thought it would help Blake, who used to build all of Tower's buildings for them, get another job. And so I leased the building for more than the asking price. Oh, that's great. And then I guess the next story to show what a, a, a brilliant genius I was, they gave me the old building that was at 1150 Connecticut Avenue before it was torn down to lease. And the first space that I leased, I figured I would show off and lease it for more per square foot than what Blake was asking. Mm-hmm. And I came back and I thought I did this absolutely terrific <laughs> job. And I got 50 cents or 75 cents more than the asking price. And I measured off the blueprints and was very proud when I came back here, not knowing that that building's blueprints were in quarter of an inch per foot rather than an eighth inch per foot on the blueprints. I didn't know that blueprints came in different sizes. So I actually gave the guy 50 cents on the dollar instead of 100 cents on the dollar. And to teach me a lesson, Blake went ahead and signed that lease. And the guy got a very good, you know, we we were doing short-term leases because we knew we were going to tear the building down. Uh So Blake signed the lease to uh, teach me a lesson that, on how to use a scale on a blueprint. <laughs> so let's go back to Blake for a moment now. So you were talking about your, your leasing prowess <laughs> growing. So this is how you really learned the business. You starting it from the leasing side, you went and you explored all the different aspects of the business. So how did the, the, the knowledge base grow? Just your own digging? Did, did you have a mentor here that helped you with, with things? Was there somebody that kind of held your hand a little more? Uh, is there the people here that were? Not much. So when I started at Blake, I was wondering what their training program was. And I went through a very extensive training program. It lasted uh, 10 minutes. Somebody handed me a telephone and said, dial zero to get an outside line or dial nine to get an outside line. Here's a sheet of the vacant space and let us know when, uh, when you find somebody. They did not have a formal training program. What I did do, though, is I pulled out a lot of their files that they had and I would read a lot of the correspondence and I'd read a lot of the contracts to see how people courted other people into being interested 
And the, the original person who started Blake Leasing was a guy named Justin Hinders, who was sort of an old sage in the industry, mm-hmm. who, who was really a spe- spectacular human being. There was a head of leasing in those days who, before I would put out a letter or anything like that, who was very good at letter writing. And I would show it to him. And he knew some whys and wherefores of leasing. He would spend some time with me. How did you learn the language of leasing? Because there is a language, obviously. It was one of the first things I learned in the industry was how to read a lease and what it meant, all the different terminology. Um, There was a lawyer. So you really weren't supposed to use lawyers in those days at Blake. (laughs) You were supposed to draft your own contracts and do it. So I would go down to the 10th floor to a law firm in those days called Danzansky and Dickey, who represented Blake. And there was a lawyer there, Milton Quint, who um, would spend some time with me in those days. And he would explain things to me and walk me through it. And he was very good at that. Mike Windsor, who ran the leasing department, spent some time with me at doing that. I knew some from reading books. I bought things like the real estate encyclopedia sure. of, of real estate, of mm-hmm. leasing. and So you were a finance major in college, so you understood the numbers of, of the business a little bit. And GW had one course in <laughs> real estate, you know, introduction to real estate. So you know what a cap rate was when you came in. I, I, well, I, I could run numbers uh-huh. very well, you know, and I was always good with numbers. But then I would read... So what I would do, I would read a couple of paragraphs of a lease, and then I would sometimes sit down with the guy who ran leasing in those days, and I would ask him to explain, what does this mean? Or somebody on the other side wants to change this. Why do they want to change it? If we don't change it, why is it to the landlord's benefit? If we do change it, why do they want to change? Why is it bad for the tenant? And we would go paragraph by paragraph, and if I could get his time, I would then make notes, and then I started a loose-leaf book, which I kept for years, of the meaning of each paragraph in the lease. And then as leases, in those days, leases were five pages long, which really wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. And then as I did each transaction and people made changes to it, I kept copies of those changes. So then for each paragraph in the lease... I, used, I kept sliding them wow. into this loose leaf book so that I would understand changes that were acceptable and changes that weren't acceptable. Do you still have that book? I don't know. I don't know whether I gave it to Owen when he took over, when we made him president. And it's so archaic. And now everything's in computers and things like that. But I did. I had a book of proposals that I probably kept for 30 years. Proposals that outside brokers gave to us that I could learn by and Mm -hmm. the smarter they brought, you know, some people dreaded smart brokers who would come in with these very complex proposals. And I loved it because I would keep them and learn by them. And I could name all the old timers that, you know, from Jim Hunter to uh, Steve Altman and all the people that were in the business in those days who really knew their trades. And I would keep those proposals and I would put them in a loose leaf book. And know it. I was a absolutely aggressive canvasser. I would get in early in the morning and try and get paperwork out of the way and show space all day long. And a lot. I, sometimes I would canvas from six at night till eight thirty at night 
because I knew that lawyers would work late at night. And if I saw that a number ended in 7,000, I would then dial 7,001, 7,002, <laughs> 7,003, hoping to get somebody to answer that law firm because right. the hardest thing was always getting past the receptionist. And then I would say, I was at a party and I can't remember who I met from your law firm who runs real estate, mm -hmm. who does your acquisitions, mm -hmm. but they told me to follow up and call there. Can you connect me with them? <laughs> and I forget his name. Do you know who that is? And I was pretty successful at it. And I, I probably, some years, did some of the highest volume in the city. So this was on the phone. What about door-to-door -door canvassing? I, did you I, do that I would go to a building. I would copy down the entire directory. I would knock on doors and sweet-talk the receptionist into telling me who did their real estate. And I would call the person and say, listen, if you're not moving and you don't want to move, perhaps you need more space. And then I would ask them, who's the person next door? Maybe I could talk to them and ask whether or not they would move to accommodate your expansion so that you don't have to move. And then others would be, if we were building a building on a block, I would call people saying, you know, I'm sure you don't, you must like this area. Why don't you just move to our building, which is being built right next door to yours? So did you learn these scripts from, was this your own creativity or did you have a script you know, that people helped you? Or did you listen to other people's? I'm not a script kind of guy. Okay. Um, so it was all just spontaneous, just all. Yes. There were certain key points that I would want to focus on. I thought scripted, they'd throw me out for being a salesman. So no, I didn't like scripted. And then I kept cross-referenced loosely books with all the information that I could get out of that person that I spoke to when their lease expired, whether they were growing, whether they were shrinking, mm -hmm. who I spoke to the day I spoke to them when their lease expired. And then a year later, I would call them up as if they were my best friend. Say, we spoke a year ago, whether or not they said, call me back in a year. <laughs> you said to follow up a year from now. Mm -hmm. How are things going? Are you growing? Are you shrinking? You know, is it time to sit down and talk now? And it was a game. I used to keep score on how many people would just hang up on me, how many people were nice enough to talk to me. And, you know, I, I found that anything above a three or a four percent batting average on cold calling was pretty good. And I would see if I could beat the batting average. Yeah, those loose leaf books absolutely grew. And then eventually ACT was invented. So then you could do it on your computer. And yeah. So did you use Black Sky? I mean, did you use some of the, the tools of the trade at the time, at least the written ones that we were able to have access to? Yeah, I remember Andy Florence, probably the day he started the business. Well, co-star, right. Mm -hmm. uh, well, he was Black Sky. You know, originally it was a printed publication and then eventually, you know, his mother worked where I worked at the Saul Company. And I saw his, I heard him talk about that thesis. He wrote at Princeton about it. So it was interesting yeah. to hear about it. Yeah, because remember, there was, you know, when we first did it, there was no database. And my goal was always to sell myself in a relationship before really getting into selling the concept of space. I was on trade salary, like, didn't pay commissions or anything like that. Oh, that's interesting. And so, you know, I started here at $7,000 a year. My secretary is making $8,000 a year. So I couldn't decide whether I ought to be a secretary or whether I ought to be a leasing so agent. So did you have a bonus for, for performance, though, based on leasing? I mean, activity? That really came later on. 
No, in the beginning, you know, so the next year, maybe they gave me 8000 or $8,500. And eventually it got to the point where some of the people that I put into our building said, we've outgrown a Blake building mm-hmm. and we'd like you to help us find space outside of a Blake building. I can recall, you know, probably the one that I helped out for 30 years was a law firm out of Texas, Bracewell and Patterson, which became Bracewell and Giuliani, and then Bracewell and Patterson, I think, again. And I actually sold their lease to another firm in the building mm-hmm. to help subsidize the move and move them from one of our buildings into 30,000 square feet in International Square. And then I moved them into, I think, 70 or 80,000 square feet in another phase of International Square. Mm-hmm. And then they called me up and said, we had an overzealous managing partner in Washington, and we really only need 30,000 square feet. Can you dispose of this space that we just built that was very grand, where we put millions of dollars of mm. improvements into it? And they said, here's an exclusive. And then I guess it's not fair to name who they hired, but they had a national brokerage firm that they represented who said, we want that less thing, or you're going to lose us as a client. And I said, you know, then rip up my exclusive. You know, I don't want you to lose a major client. Give them a shot. And after X amount of months, they called me up and said, you know, this is a major expense to us. Forget about them as a client. You know, we have to dispose of this space. We want you to give it a shot. And, uh, you know, we're going to cancel their exclusive. And I guess I, I was in the right place at the right time. And probably in about 60 days, I got them out of the lease. And whole on the improvements they put in. And was this an assignment or was it a sublease? This was a sublease. Got them completely out of a couple of floors in International Square, I think phase three, and then moved them as the anchor tenant over to, I believe, 2000 K Street that Ron Good was putting together when he left the car company. So your third party work more or less came from existing tenants at Blake primarily, or was it? No, that's, that's how it started. And uh-huh. remember on all of that, I didn't get any commissions that all went to Blake, you know, the Just commissions didn't start until I took over and got promoted to run the leasing group. And then I went in and said, listen, now I don't have a conflict of interest in discussing this, you know, here's a structure that I'd like to start at Blake. Well, that's that conflict of interest is an interesting question. Talk about the structure of Blake. And it was primarily a construction company. And you had a real estate group basically to lease and manage your existing assets. So talk about how that evolved. And, and So when I started here, we were really an investment arm for a construction company. Blake, when I started here, was the largest contractor in the Washington area. Mm-hmm. We were larger than what is now Clark. Uh, we were uh, a union contractor. Matter of fact, if we were bidding a job, a lot of times in those days, Clark, let's call him George Hyman, which is what they were in those days, sometimes they wouldn't even bid against Blake. Blake. Weren't um, you the largest federal contractor at one point, too, general contractor? Well, we were the largest contractor, whether it was federal or otherwise. We built for the Abramsons, so we built for Jerry Wallman. But even private, I mean, public, all the public buildings in the we, city. We did, a, we did, there's a book called Above Washington, where uh, our, our, one of our marketing materials was, uh, it was a phenomenal book, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it, it yes. where we then used as a marketing piece, we marked it up with all the buildings that were in Above Washington that Blake built, which 
I'm still in awe when I take a look at that to see all the buildings that Blake built that are in this city. That entire Southwest quadrant there with all those federal buildings, how many of those were built by Blake? I couldn't give you a number, but I can name some. And it, it, it's truly staggering. The James Forrestal building, <laughs> the underground museum that's now the controversy whether or not to take the Sacker name off, the Hoover building, uh, the, the, the FBI building, right. the Hubert so, Humphrey building. Department um, of Transportation, that big monster, was that a million square foot building? Was that built by Blake? I don't remember. You know, there's so many of them, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost hard to remember. The Smithsonian? It, it, well, Smithsonian was the Sacker Museum, which 96% of that building is underground. It's the largest slurry wall in the city. We actually joint ventured that, I remember, with a French company mm-hmm. to, to, to build that. I believe we did something like 28 projects or 32 projects for the metro system. So all the metro stations, basically, the older ones. Well, the maintenance yards, finish work in metro systems. We didn't do tunneling or anything like that. Walter Reed, Bethesda Naval, very, very large. We, and then when there was a changing of the guard here, when one of the brothers left who was running the company and the other two brothers took over. We took Blake National. Our first project in San Diego was a $140 million naval hospital. Mm -hmm. We then went to Boston. We went down in the Tidewater area. Mostly federal on the side of the region. We were probably one of the largest constructors of hospitals in the United States. Mm -hmm. We built the VA hospital across from the Superdome. That was one of the few things standing after the hurricane. Uh, after Katrina. So we had an office then in New Orleans. By then, we were non-union, so we didn't go into areas like when we were in San Diego, we never went north of Irvine. We did a lot of Kaiser facilities. We did a lot of school facilities, and we never even went into a city unless we had at least $25 million worth of work before we even went there. At our peak, we had 3,000 employees. When I came here, we could build 80% of a building with our own forces without even a subcontractor. So yes, Blake was very much focused on, to jump back, when I came here, this was a construction company that had a small little real estate group that took care of the investments with the, where buildings were built out of the profits from the construction company. Although eventually, I think it reversed where the fortunes were in real estate, where probably, you know, the real estate's worth over a billion dollars today. When did the transition take place? Talk about the transition from Blake being a major general contractor into now more or less just a real estate company and vertically integrated, though. And you can talk a little bit about that. It's hard to put dates, but things started changing really on a parallel path. So when the brother that was running the company left and the other two brothers took on more of an active role, five of us became partners with the, the Bender family. Obviously, my focus was, gentlemen, it's, it's time we focus more on real estate. But the person who took over running uh, the construction group said, you know, I think we ought to expand. And so from his standpoint, although... Bear in mind that there wasn't Blake real estate. It was all Blake construction in those days. So I was, I helped out as everybody did. You know, I was vice president of Blake construction. So 
if I could help bring in a construction project, I would bring in a construction project to Blake. So on a parallel path, Blake went national. And the first place we went to out of this area was California. At the same time, I said, we've been really babysitting on our real estate. The prior brother was given tax advice that expanding the real estate would lead to significant illiquid assets in the estate and you shouldn't grow it anymore. And I said, I don't think so. You know, look at everybody else in town. Let's go. This was what, about 1980, 81, something like that? This would be around 1981. Maybe, yeah. So the first building that we did, really, I think we started in 1979, maybe a little early, was I had been reading that Carr wanted to go in the East End and he was going to build up Metro Center. Mm -hmm. So I said, there's one corner that he really didn't touch. So we ended up building the southeast corner of 12th and G Street where we built 1120 G Street. Mm-hmm. I said, with what Carr's going to do, we'll, we'll benefit from the changing demographics of the area. This was a Blake development. This was your... your or, or this was a ground up. We tore down the old Neisner's department store. Mm-hmm. And literally that building rests on Metro Center. It rests on the tunnel. All well and good, but Carr didn't move forward with their development, so we were the lone ranger down there. So that's the good news and the bad news. Mm -hmm. So we went down there, and we had this brand-new building that had terrific transportation. Uh, It took us probably close to a year just to get Metro to agree to let us dig that hole and have a building sitting pretty much on top of their tunnel almost. The other thing that happened during that time period was interest rates took off like a rocket ship. So we had a construction loan that we were paying 21% interest on, which was less than fun. That was the first building I was a partner in. So obviously had a double interest in it. I don't think there's a project that you do if you live to be 150 that you don't learn from. So obviously I learned that 21% interest was very expensive. (laughs) We leased up the building successfully. And I said, man, 21% is a lot. And ended up finding a life insurance company that agreed to do a takeout at 14%. Only they also took 30 or 35% of the profits. Oh, it was a participating loan. It was a participating loan. Mm -hmm. And that was something new that had just come out. But I said, it's still better than spending another seven points in interest. And we went to the closing table at a title company that I forget who they were. And nobody knew how to write title insurance for an unknown amount, which is how I met Stu Levin. So Stu ended up, we moved over to Stu's title company and he figured it out and we closed. And that that was sort of our beginning of saying, you know something, Let's, let's keep going on this real estate stuff. It's good. What was Blake's portfolio at that time? uh, Before that, it was just the out-and-out core that we still won't touch. My philosophy, which is why I guess the vendors never fired me, uh, was uh, to be conservative, not to over-leverage. So we don't refinance to take money out of our buildings. 
we, we like to keep our leverage low. We like to spend cash flow and distribute cash flow, but not put debt on a building, N not to take our equity out of the building in the form of debt and distribute it. Mm -hmm. So that allows us to go through all the cycles of real estate without having, so we can compete. And in my mind, that puts us in a better, better competitive position. So if the average building in this town is sold every three and a half to four and a half years, each time those buildings are sold, their value is ratcheted up, their debt position is ratcheted up, we can then compete better against those buildings. Mm -hmm. You also vertically, you're vertically integrated. You so, don't do any third parties, to my knowledge, on any buildings, pretty much, right? When you say don't... Third party management or leasing or... We any, do do third party. You do? Okay. Yes. But back then, I mean, you know, historically... Back in the early 80s, well, we did for Sonny Abramson. Okay, I'm talking about your buildings bringing in a contract. You you managed all that. You were vertically integrated. Totally. Yeah, well, we, yes, we were the contractor, we the leasing agent, the managing agent, right. the, and the developer. No third party outside involvement. You did everything yourselves. So you could control things and you're... So as far as incentivism as an operating company, you had fees that you could charge the properties, et cetera. Or, or not charge. Oh, or not charge, I guess. <laughs> okay. Or not charge to reduce our basis. Interesting. Interesting. So, so income, I mean, income for the company, though, to pay your people and everything was from leasing fees. From yeah. The, so the operating company, uh, and in, when we did that, we didn't form like real estate until I believe around 1997. Before that, Blake and Blake Construction Company owns all the stock in Blake Real Estate anyway. Because when we closed down Blake Construction, we made it into a holding company that has certain investments in some of our real estate projects and it owns all the stock of Blake Real Estate. So it all flows up anyway to the same spot. So Blake Real Estate does, it is a leasing company, it's a management company, it's a development company, and it develops for Blake-owned properties, and it does fee, well, I'm talking third party. At, at the present times, it does third-party development, and it does third-party construction management also. Mm -hmm. And that business has grown a fair amount, especially over the last 10 years. So talk about your personal growth. You were in leasing. How did you learn about the management side of the business? And, and your and then how did you learn managing people? How did you get into that role and how did that evolve? And was that some of your more challenging aspects, managing people? Or was it, you know, just you know, the challenge? You know, what were your more challenge what were the more challenging parts of your career? Well, learning property management, we had a pro a head of property management that we had for many years here. And it was the same prototype that a lot of people had years ago from the 60s and 70s, the ex, the ex-army, the ex-colonel, sure. whatever. So we had the ex-colonel from the Air Force, which was good for a period of time. And like everything else, the world changed. So why? Why was it good and why, is it, why did the world change and how did that affect that? It was good at its time because that's the type of mentality and disciplines that it took to manage properties in those days. It was organization, it was discipline, sort of like the military. So you ran it like a battleship, basically. Yeah, that, that's the way you ran a building. The world started changing and moving more and more 
taught a concierge. So you had, it really split disciplines. So your staff still was following an organized pattern, but yet now you started looking toward the tenant, much more so. But before the tenant was the byproduct. He was there and as long as you ran your building well, they were happy, but they didn't have certain unique demands. Lights were on, air conditioning was great. They were happy. What stimulated the unique demands, as you said? Concierge companies started. All of a sudden, it was concierge companies crept up. So, give me an example. Somebody with you. Capital Concierge, for instance, was around. And, right. But there was one lady who really ate up the business. And I'm, I'm drawing a blank on her name. And so, people were hiring these companies. You'd put the concierge in the lobby. And you could leave your dry cleaning with them. You could uh, say, I want theater tickets. They did stuff like a concierge in a hotel. So now all of a sudden, you're a little bit more tenant-centric. Was this, what, the 1990s, you think? No, before that. I, I, think you're, I think you're in the 80s already. Okay. Some people moved slower than others toward it. And I think Blake lagged in making that change because the principles of Blake had a lot of faith. And this was, this was an old-time employee. He started before me. He, he started here in the 60s, and they were loyal to him. And I forgot what year I finally went into the family and said, I have a request. I'd like to move the entire real estate company out of Blake Construction because people are getting confused when even our salesmen are calling up and saying, hi, I'm with Blake Construction. I want to talk to you about real estate. He mm-hmm. said, well, we don't need Blake, we, we don't need a contractor. So they're getting confused. And I and I said, you're known as this huge contractor. You're also known for for as a government doing a lot of government contracting. Mm-hmm. And th- there's a different mentality when you're appealing to the private sector. I th- I think it's time that we separate the two. And uh, one of the brothers really went to bat for me, one of the two. You know, the other one said, you know, there's no need to. And the other brother, who was the one that I used to go to a lot, Stanley, about real estate, who was who, our treasurer. And he, he was the guy who really was the real estate guy. Howard was much more of a contractor. That mm-hmm. was his background. And he said... This is the Bender family we're talking about. Yeah. And Stanley said, let him go. And they said, well, you know, Steve's always sort of been under the contracting umbrella. How do we know that he can even afford the overhead? And Stanley said, if he flops, he flops. You know, you know, we'll find out. So he had a lot of faith in you. He was a good guy. He was a cheerleader. And we, we had a very, very close and special relationship. So he would be a mentor then to you. In, in some respects, a very unique mentor. If you ever saw the movie Arthur, that was Stanley. <laughs> so, you know, uh, there, there were times Stanley used to come to work between two in the morning and six in the morning. I mean, he, he was a very unique guy. But, you know, I, I truly, truly loved Stanley. He was a very interesting guy. He was almost a savant with numbers. And I could meet with him real fast. And normally his response was, if you want to take the risk, there's only one thing I want to ask of you. Don't put me back in a cold water flat. Go for it. And he said, 
go. And the other person who really helped me out a lot was Bob Smith. So how did Bob help you? Bob and I knew each other. Uh, He had spoken years ago about me coming over there to do for him what I did for the Benders. Just to stop for a second, uh, Bob Smith was Robert Smith, uh, the Charles E. Smith Company. Yes. And we, we had chats over the years, and Bob and Howard, actually, Howard Bender, were good friends. They actually went to Blueprint re- Reading School together years ago. And I said, number one, I'm very happy at Blake. It's flattering the discussions that we're having, but I think it would affect your friendship, number did Blake, one. Did Blake do construction for, for Smith? Smith did their own. That's what they, I thought. They had, uh, had Decklebombs during a blank on his first name, but... Had a guy named Deckelbaum. Howard, I think. No? No. Okay. All right. Marvin. Marvin Deckelbaum okay. ran okay. their construction group, who retired four times from Smith. <laughs> and they brought him back, who was really good. So Bob and I got to know each other a little bit. So there was a lunch between Howard, Bob, and myself, and I explained what I was looking to do. And Bob backed it and said, I think I I understand it. And he he backed the idea too. And I thank him for it. So we moved up to 1150 Connecticut. Was there any cross-pollinization between Smith and yeah, vendors as far as ownership? Or? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we owned 1101 17th Street together, for instance. Oh, okay. okay. And the charity-wise, there was a lot of cross-pollinization between the two companies. Both companies were very charitable. With the Jewish community primarily, right? Yes. Yeah. So... When we moved up the street, it was, you know, the leasing people and property management. And I met with Howard and I said, I, th- I think you have to change my title. And he said, why? And I said, I have the same title as the head of property management. And I think I want to make a lot of changes on that front. And the fact that he's a colonel, he'll respect the chain of command if I have a higher title than he has. And he said, what do you have in mind? I said, you know. He's vice president. I think it's time for executive vice president, senior vice president, whatever you want. I really don't care, Mm -hmm. but I need the ability to meet with him and have authority. Have authority, and he'll respect the chain of command. And we have to move from just the guy who cares about mechanical systems and things like that. I care about service and there are other things I want to implement that mm-hmm. he's going to have to, he's going to have to make changes. And after 30, 35 years, he's going to have a hard time with this. And we're going to have some differences of opinion. And there may be some meetings with you where these differences of opinion are going to be discussed. And I said, you may have a hard time with some of the things I'm going to do, which is the other reason why I want to move out. Because even my philosophy on personnel is different than yours. Why? Because real estate people are treated differently than construction people. The world is changing. And as a contractor, it's different. Your margins are different. I need creativity. I need other things that you're given a set of blueprints. And it's here, build this. Just tell me how much. And you guys do a lot of bid work more so than negotiated. If your number's low, you're hired. Now, by then, I had already started uh, a construction company called CCSI Construction, 
It didn't compete with Blake. It did mostly interiors. Interiors. And I would meet with people and negotiate. Or they would do it because they shook hands with us and felt, you know, I would say, I'm going to take care of you. And that's why we got the job. Some we did, but a lot of it was negotiated work. And I said, it's it's just a different mentality mm-hmm. and a different type. And if I have to, I'll leave money on the table to keep a client and a relationship going because I'm looking at the next job, the next job, the next job, where if you're doing straight, hard, especially public bidding, the government hadn't yet changed yet to source selection and other mm-hmm. things that eventually evolved. If you're a low bidder, you're going to get it again the next time. I'm going to meet with people and go through their blueprints and say, you hire me now, I'd like to go through your blueprints and minimize the change orders you're going to get. If you're a hard bid government contractor, those change orders are more lucrative than not having them. So it's, and I'm more from the school of, I'd like to be part of your team as opposed to having a distance between us. So you look at things in the long run. I look at once I pick up a client, I don't want to lose that client ever. I I can think of a transaction I was involved in years ago with the American Bankers Association. You wanted stories for this podcast. Of course. So the American Bankers Association originally came into the Bender Building as a subtenant of IBM in 1970, and they're still there today. Did you bring them in? I did not. They came in before you were there. I was there. And again, they came in as a subtenant because IBM outgrew the Bender Building and was moving to 1801 K Street in those days. But then their lease came up, and we, re- we put them on as a prime tenant once or twice and rebuilt their space. And the last time we did a renewal with them 15 years ago, they were interviewing brokers. And to the dismay, even I think of our leasing group, I said, I want to be interviewed. They said, what do you mean? You're the landlord. I want to be interviewed. And I met with their board or their committee. And I said, I'd like to be interviewed. And here's why I think you don't need a broker. Here's the length of our relationship. And here's what we've always done. I don't think you need a broker. And some of the best brokers in town had shown up to this. You know, they looked at me, you know, when we were all waiting outside. What the hell are you doing here? And I said, I, I, I think we've passed this in our relationship. And they ended up saying, we'll hire you. Now, did you take them to other buildings? No. Other options? No. Didn't have to. No. I said, we want you to stay here and we're going to give you all the benefits of no broker. So make believe I'm your broker and I gave you 100% return of the fee Mm -hmm. where other brokers are probably offering you back half or whatever. I said, what I'm after is having you here for another 15 years and we're going to take your space back to raw concrete and build you brand new. You're, you're going to have whatever you could have. If you move, you're going to have the interiors. If you like the lobby, you like the elevators and the facade of the building, mm-hmm. if that's acceptable to you, whatever you were going to build in that brand new building for more money, you're going to have in this building. Mm-hmm. You know the level of service that we give. If you go to another building and you sign a 15-year lease, statistically, you're going to have at least two to three owners 
of that building during the life of your lease. Here, you know exactly what you're going to get. And that's my pitch to you. And they said, well, we love what we have here. They even have their own maid. You know, they don't have part of their mm -hmm. regular cleaning staff. They have their own maid plus a regular cleaning staff here. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know the arrangement. You never make a second phone call. You call our regular people. If you need, if you don't get satisfaction, you've got my direct office number, my cell number, and my home number, then it's my problem, not your problem. And they Service said- Service orientation. They said, fine, we're gonna do it. It was fun. And as I told them, there's never, you sit on that side of the table, we sit on this side of the table. We're gonna go through a, an expensive rebuild of this thing. And nobody, if the architect makes a mistake, both sides are going to come up with the most cost-effective solution. And we're gonna do this as a team. And if you're not happy with something once you see it because you didn't un understand it on paper or whatever else, fine. Tell us. We're going to make it. it it's going to go till you're happy. And I think it worked out really well for both sides. We got to keep them, which is pretty incredible, from 1970. And here we are in 2019. You know, we know we have them at least until 2022. And I don't, I don't think many people have 140,000 square foot tenant that long. And I think part of that is really our philosophy on how we go about it. I forget the name of the award that our property management company just received, but it's something like one of the top 2% in the country on, and a lot of people in town don't know that, on how we manage our tenants. So the philosophy is long-term, as I said earlier. And so a tenant like that, if they're willing to do a 15-year lease, they want to stay. They're looking for stability. They want every day. Although as tenants have evolved over the last 10, 15 years, people are looking now a little differently. They're not looking for a 15-year term. They're looking to have a shorter term to have flexibility for change because the dynamics in business today are changing. Now, an association like that has been around for probably over 100 years. They're not in a high change mode as, a, as an organization. So how do you address the, the more high change type tenant, the tenant that's evolving and, and constantly changing and growing? I think I disagree with you in some regards. Okay. Right now, I would not say this is anybody's favorite real estate market who's <laughs> a developer. <laughs> we have too much supply, not enough demand. The average firm over the last eight years has been attempting to do that 15% shrink. Size of offices are going down. People are losing offices. They're going to workstations. People who are in workstations are going to smaller workstations. People who were in workstations might be going to tables. To say the least, that led to people moving to create that module. So to go through to stay, some people are saying, I don't want to go through that. I'd rather just move into a new building where that's already put in place. Although right. we have been successful with some extremely large people and saying, we can do it without you leaving the building. We just did it with the Justice Department where there was even an article published when they were out in the marketplace where Blake was given, a, I believe, a 3% chance of winning that procurement for 217,000 square feet. 
where we completely leveled justice and did that and did a consolidation where we swung them through the building. But the way we did it, we took a chance and we did not renew a 60,000 square foot tenants lease. Mm -hmm. So I said, we either have a vacant building (laughs) or we're going to win this procurement. So we didn't renew Khaki's lease. It was, you know, it was a Mm -hmm. very credit worthy tenant. And we said, we're going to, we're, we're going to go for this consolidation. And if we lose, boy, are we going to lose? Because that means we lost justice. Plus we lost Khaki. We did it with the Wall Street Journal when... So Murdoch bought them and said, nobody has an office except for one guy who by contract has an office. He's not even the president. And again, we, they've been in our building for 25 years. We said, we'd like to keep you. And we believe we can, we can work around this. We can phase it and do it. And we continue to service you, which we did. And they said, we believe you. We, we, we've seen you guys in action, which is the beauty of having not only being an owner developer, but also having the construction on. We think that helps. We, we have fast to turn around. Mm-hmm. We can retain people by doing things that other people wouldn't try. And sometimes we've taken risks that were pretty far out there as a contractor saying we can do this and make it happen where we leave the meeting and say, can we really do this? <laughs> Some of your competition have now evolved a little bit to getting almost to the hotel, hotelization or the hospitality orientation, which you talked about a little bit with the concierge service. But some people have taken it another level where they're treating tenants almost as if they're hotel guests. And the, the lobby is like a, you walk in, you feel like you're at a five-star hotel in the lobby, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of a thought process along with the co-working idea, which is another evolution, of course. So is Blake addressing that in some form or fashion, or is there a way that you're kind of... The answer is, yeah, I think we've moved a lot more towards service. Mm -hmm. So we have one building where, and I attribute it all to the person who's on site there, where she is truly the concierge from the Four Seasons. We've had people who have outgrown that building, who have left, gone to another building, called us up and said, can you call the owner of the building and take over the management? She lives and breathes the building, and there isn't anything that any tenant would want that she can't do. This is all her, and this is all her creativity and ideas? We we totally leave her to do whatever she wants to do for those tenants. They do. Remember, one reason why it's evolving is the tenants are paying for it through their escalators. Right. We do it in our other buildings. Everybody is, at, we've actually brought in the Ritz-Carlton a few times to teach our people the Ritz-Carlton philosophy, Interesting. which I learned a lot from, and I believe in it. That's the reason why, especially when people are going for a close, if I'm around or especially on a lunch transaction, I'll go in and I think Owen Billman, who's now president, will go in. I've said, give me your cell number, give me your home number. You tell them you have a problem. Don't ever make a second phone call. Make it to me. It's my, if you have a problem, it's my problem, not your problem. The real secret to running it like a hotel Part of it is speed. That's really what's going on in the world. And so if you even look at, 
we, we do our own cleaning even to control that quality. If you go out in our buildings, you'll see that even the person running the maids is sitting there with an iPad so that a problem can be identified, not in a written report, but there'll be a picture of it that's going to be sent to the property manager who will see it the next day. If it's something that can't be taken care of by the cleaning staff, we have our own on-call, what we call shop. So we have a staff of carpenters and laborers that we keep on call to do where normally you'd have to call in a service or whatever mm -hmm. else to fix a broken door, to fix a broken whatever. We have full-time people who just do that. That picture is out there the next day so that people can respond immediately. The concierge concept, we actually met with a concierge company the other day to talk about rebringing them back in. When we had them in a building on Connecticut Avenue, we found they weren't being used. We brought them in and we said, bring your log of use. And they said, your people aren't using us as much. We're now going to explore that again. I mean, the concierge service told us, you're not getting your money's worth. Sometimes it's tenant education, though, just to know that they're there. They know the that. Mm -hmm. So, But when a tenant makes a request, we're now fully computerized. So not only can they see that the request has been accepted, they can follow that request all the way through and know exactly where it is. Mm -hmm. They'll know that it's been received. They're going to know when it's going to be completed. And if there's a delay, they're going to know about that too. So all of that's up. You know, we all have, well, everybody uses different software, but there's software now where people don't even have to lift up the telephone to make a request anymore. That's all done through software. The level of service is dictated by even the type of tenant that's in the building and their demands. The quality of how much CapEx we put in our buildings. We have some trophy buildings, 21st and K Street, Vermont and K Street, and then we have some B-plus buildings. What we like to do is have our B-plus buildings better than the other people's. I, th I think we spend a lot more on CapEx than other people do, to say the least. Even things that people don't see mechanically. Mm -hmm. and we should go into also why that is and, and talk a little bit more about your financial situation as a company as well, because what it allows for you to, to be able to do. So maybe step back a moment and talk a little bit about how that evolved and the thought process behind the capitalization of Blake and, you know, why you decided to go the route you did, you know, instead of doing what other people have done, like the public company route or another type of ownership structure. So maybe back up to that, maybe. Okay, we can back up a little bit. Okay, so uh, I, I guess let, let, let's pick a crash during okay. one of the crashes. 1990, let's say, 1989-90. I, I vividly remember that. Year. <laughs> so when you go through a crisis time like that, you sit back and say, okay, what do we want to do to go through this crisis? A lot of Blake's financing was done through unsecured debt. We've made decisions over the years that rather than being a factory 
and cranking out product that we are long-term holders. We are building these buildings for multi-generational ownership. Most economic partners that people bring in have a time horizon when they want their exit. Our exit, we do not have an exit strategy. Our exit is to hold. Our exit is to deleverage. So we went through the following. Do we bring in a partner to get out of where we're at? Because obviously people did not like unsecured debt. Where did that thought process come from? Was that from the, the Bender family originally? I mean, what, what, why did they not want to you know, lever up and grow and just explode or expand the business dramatically? I think it was a combination of a few of us here with the Bender family that instead of being a factory, because we did buy and sell a lot of buildings. And I could go over a few of those things with you because they, there are some interesting stories that go with that. However, the core portfolio we felt should be kept in the family, should be delevered, and is something that can be passed down to the generations and support the people off of cash flow and assure multi-generations of a comfortable lifestyle and be a legacy that's passed down where grandpa, daddy, and whatever can be remembered as assuring a nice lifestyle to all these people. We then have other properties that we've been involved in other than the core where we have gone in and gone out of the properties. And that was the mission is to, to look at opportunity then. We, we then went into opportunities, and I can name some of them. And if you're looking for stories, which you told me you were looking for, there's some very colorful stories with some of them, where it wasn't that we are wed to this for life, because we either had other partners or the way the finances were structured. These were set up to make money. Mm-hmm. These were not set up to be buy and hold for life. So the core portfolio was set up. Some of those deals go back to Jack Bender, which would be the founding of the company, the founder of the company. And the Bender building was built in 1958, 59. Is that the oldest building in the portfolio? Yes. So the first building that was ever built by Jack, we still own. And some of the other Jack buildings, we still own. 1800 G Street. 1800 G Street. Well, the building we're in now, actually, I, I was, I was already at Blake, but Jack had bought the old building that was here. It was a people's drugstore, freestanding building, and an old medical building or an apartment building that was converted to doctors and some mm-hmm. people. Other deals that we did, we did a lot after Morty left. Morty was not, Morty was focused on the contracting end. Morty Just as context, Morton Bender was one of the oldest son of. Morty was the youngest son. Youngest son of Jack Bender. But he took over running when Jack left. And then when Morty left and Stanley and Howard were in, and then we became, five of us became partners, we then acted like other developers where the goal was to do the transaction to make money. And times had changed where it was difficult just to build, hold forever because of the way that transactions were structured. I'll give you a few examples. I'm a junk reader. 
uh, read things that nobody else would read. So there was a building that was owned by the Dutch government, by Dutch investors over at 425 I Street. So I read two things that interested me in that building. Number one, that there was a treaty with the Dutch government where they were exempt from capital gains taxes through December of whatever year it was mm-hmm. that we're talking about mm-hmm. in the 80s. And number two, the federal government had signed a contract with the Immigration Bureau to wire the entire country back to that building, all the immigration. Anybody who went after that building was told that the Immigration Bureau was going to move because of the sensitivity of, the, of what was in there. They belonged in a government-owned building, and they were going to leave their 300,000 square feet. I said, why would they sign this deal with the EDS? I'm not a believer. So the vendors traditionally did not put up money. They did not. Everybody thought they gave me zillions of dollars to do deals with. They gave me their financial statements, which is why we had so much unsecured debt over mm-hmm. the years. And Howard said, I'm not thrilled about this. If you really want to do it, go to it. But I really don't. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 400,000 square feet. They're leaving the building is everything everybody's reading. And I said, eh, I want to do this. So I ended up putting a first deed of trust on that building, a second deed of trust on that building. Was this before they moved? or They, they were in there still, but had not signed the lease, an extension. And then for equity... Then the second deed of trust needed a participant to go in with them, which was Bank of Montreal, if I recall. Was this early 80s? Yeah. This so was this during was high interest rate time. No, this wasn't high interest rate time. This was during the savings and loan. Oh, so crazy. This, time. Close to the nine, the this was probably 1986, 87. Late 80s, yeah. Okay. And then for equity, I got a savings and loan to give me a third deed of trust <laughs> where they took a 45% kicker. So basically, I financed the building for a million dollars more than I was buying it for. Totally non-recourse. That doesn't sound like a Blake deal to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all of our deals were 100% financed Uh and then deleveraged. So we're low leverage people, but in day one, they didn't put up any money on any deal. And then I met with the government and we started negotiating and they said, well, you know, we we think we're going to move to Virginia where we're going to build a building and all that. And ultimately it didn't go that way. And I said, you know, you don't even have time to do it. If you sign the 10 year lease, that gives you all the time in the world to figure this thing out. And I even went over with them. I said, we build a lot of government buildings here. Statistically, it takes you eight to 12 years to put together a government building, a 10 year lease. Was right in the middle. And while I'm talking to them, I decided that, and that neighborhood was horrible in those days. Let me see whether I could sell it. And I made someone a partner who introduced me to the savings and loan. I made someone else a partner who put up the deposit of a quarter of a million dollars to just hold the building. So we had some partners in the deal who almost made introductions. And then plus we had the SNL. And I remember the SNL at the last minute said, you know, would you give me another point to do the deal? And I said, would you loan it to me? 
So he said, sure. I said, then I'll give you another point. <laughs> that was a different era. So I remember flying out to Chicago and telling Heitman, I, I was introduced to Heitman. In those days, Continental of Illinois was one of our big banks. And they said, you know, we have someone who we think would pay you a lot of money if you could close that lease. I said, okay. So I met with, and I, I, I met with uh, Steve Perlmutter and a few other people out there. And I bought the building, I think, for $28 million. And they said, ultimately, uh, I think we agreed on a sale price. If you could sign this prototypical government lease, because you don't have a deal right now. So was this a pre-sale with them? Is that what you're negotiating? It, it was a prototypical sale that if, if you can deliver this, we'll pay you $62 million. So nine months later or six months later, whatever it was, we signed the lease with the government that pretty much matched that. Heitman said, we'll close in 30 days. And I think it cost us a million dollars in TIs to close that transaction. It's not like we were wed to that. And I think that was the right thing to do. Because later on, I think the building traded at like 30 or $40 million years. You know, mm -hmm. Heitman then sold it and it kept mm -hmm. going backwards. So, you know, we weren't wed to that. There was dirt that we bought with PMI, with Antonelli over at 13th and New York Avenue for three and a half million dollars that we sold to Dayon in, in those days for 32 million dollars. Was, was this activity driven by the financial markets at the time, the, the flexibility of capital to do those things, for instance? Because at least as far as I know, you haven't done that type of activity over the last, say, 10, 15 years at least. So explain what, what were the circumstances that drove that activity at the time? Unsecured debt was readily available, readily available. So it was, it was a capital-driven concept. Yeah, but we were involved, as you know, in lots of things other than real estate right. also. Right. The answer is, if a deal made sense and we could do it where we put down nothing but our financial statements and mm -hmm. we believed in the transaction, mm -hmm. whether it was buying DC 101, the fiber optic company that we did, the pay telephone company, beer distributorship. We went ahead and did it. And uh, it, it was done with no money down, but personal guarantees. Unsecured on, debt. It, it was yeah. done with personal guarantees on the unsecured debt, which is why when the crash came and everybody was calling the unsecured debt, it was a very uncomfortable time. And how did you work your well way through that? Tell me how you... I know you challenged. You had challenges during that time. Tell me how that all got worked out. I had mental and physical challenges. <laughs> Explain. You know, Blake was not used to not being a 400-pound gorilla. And again, our people were more contractors than real estate people. I, w I was sort of the guy up the street. I lost 50 pounds in six months and didn't feel real well. I was flying around the country putting out fires and... This was 1990, 91, that era? Probably 89, yeah. 89, 90. And I would ask people, why are you calling this debt? The deal is good. And they said, well, we're calling the debt because if we call your debt, you're good for it. I can recall, well, I won't name banks, but there was one bank where we bought a shopping center that had an NOI of $8 million. And we had the same amount of debt. And now the NOI was up to $11 million. 
and we had already paid down some of the debt, and now they're calling our debt. The good news is some of the banks really believed in us. So in those days, one of the banks was Bank of America or whatever one of their predecessor names were, Mm -hmm. who said, we'll help you out. You know, if this bank's calling the debt, we'll help you pay it off. And not only that, but we think you ought to do real estate deals because no one in town has credit and we're a believer. So we went ahead and we did a couple of buildings and we were the only ones delivering product. We did pretty well during that period. You know, so we were putting out fires in the morning and starting deals in the afternoon. So taking the Warren Buffett philosophy of, you know, buying when everyone's distressed, basically. Nobody else could put out product. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was more the bank's idea than ours, where they said, why wouldn't you do this? We're we're not, we're telling you, Steve, we're we're not lending other people money. So that worked out well. But, you know, there there were other deals that we went ahead, 20, you know, 1120 G Street that I mentioned to you. We thought that was going to be a core deal. But, you know, when the roll cycle came along and we realized that we were putting up 100 cents and only getting a 65 cent benefit out of it, the answer was, we're going to sell the building. During the crash, when credit was tight, 1350 New York Avenue, the life company that had that loan wouldn't extend the loan. And there was nobody out there to give it. We lost tenants who outgrew the building. We wanted to invest five or six million into the building, but we weren't going to do that unless we got a long-term extension. extension. And the life company that had the deal would only give us six months. And I said, you know, is this an intelligence test? Who would put $6 million more into this for six months? Do you want to foreclose on a fully renovated, you know, we wanted to put a new lobby in and all this, you know, we can't do this. So we ended up selling that building to the Inter-American Development Bank. And instead of losing the building to this lender who wouldn't extend the loan, we ended up making, you know, a fair amount of money on that. So, Steve, let's shift now a little bit to um, your philosophy as a, as a person with the company and how you lead your people and what you tell your people when you hire them and, and how you encourage people to grow within the firm and, and also uh, in the community as well, you know, how you uh, inspire people to do their best. I think some of that is done through the vetting when we go through interviewing. We tell people that we are looking for excellence. We tell people that we are a service-oriented company. And so if we see somebody is coming out of a firm where service, either the firm isn't known for service or that's not the type of organization that it is, where it's a skill set that maybe they didn't learn, we would probably stand clear of that person. What does service mean to you, Steve? Client comes first. Among other things, listening skills. A lot of people can talk. And they can even talk a good game. Sure, I give good service. But if you go to that meeting and the only thing you do is talk and you don't listen, you can't give service. We talk about how to listen. And we even teach them that sometimes what people are telling you isn't what they mean to really listen and try and interpret what what they really are getting at. 
including sometimes people complain, but that's really not what they mean. I'll give you an example. We built something, wasn't the biggest thing in the world, it was less than a million dollars, where we did brownstone for somebody, the little work on the outside, but on the inside, we did a lot of work for this person. We got the blueprints and we gave the guy a price and he said it's more than I can afford. And we said, well, we can go back to the architect and do it. And he goes, I can't afford to pay the architect to redo this. Can you guys mark up these blueprints and bring it down to my budget? We said, okay, we'll give it a shot. We said, we can eliminate this. We can do this. We can do that. Mm-hmm. And he said, where are you at now? And we said, well, with all of this out, we're at this. He said, that's within my budget. And we did the job. And then he came in and he says, but you didn't do this and you didn't do that and you didn't do that. And we said, well, that was eliminated, you know, when you couldn't do it. He goes, well, that's not my understanding of it. This was, between you and me, this was a relative of an employee, a very close relative, like a husband. And I said, listen, here's what was brought to the meeting when we brought it in. And I might add, we actually had some things left over from some other jobs where he actually got more than what was even marked up. And I thought we went above and beyond. I was offended and the project managers were all offended. They said, we really helped this guy out. And now he's taking our guts out here. And he was nasty even at the table. And I said, uh, here's the piece of paper you signed. You know, everything with the little red X's on it is what was eliminated so we could bring it in on budget. That's not my understanding. So I said, listen, you seem really upset. I'm going to make it real simple. Here's how much we spent on the job. Here's our cost. Pay us whatever you want. If you want us to lose money, we'll lose money. If you want us to make 1%, 2%, you tell me. And he picked a number where we lost money. And he said, Is that acceptable? I said, it's not acceptable, but we're going to do it. If this is what you truly think is fair, that's fine. We'll do it. But I really, you know, obviously we don't want to work for you again. So here's a list of the subs. Call them for any warranty work. Just please, you know, don't call us again. And if this is what you really think is fair, you and I think differently. But these subs, if you call them, if you have a problem, will come. They'll take care of you. And such is life. And I just, you know, I'm a little smarter than I was yesterday. And I learned a little bit about you. And you're probably not going to come to my house for dinner. But if that's what you think is fair, that's fine. We'll still eat steak. Don't worry about it. Let's talk about stories the other way. Things that you thought, oh boy, I'm not sure I'm, this is going to work. And then all of a sudden, it just came out of nowhere. This is unbelievable. I think 425 I Street would probably be the best one. (laughs) That was a big, that one worked out a lot better than we ever thought it would work out. Did people do things that surprised you in a positive? I mean, just, you know, you were just overwhelmed. I can't believe this is happening kind of thing. Well, on 425 I Street, I think the fact that we got the government to commit on that one, I think the financing that fell into place on that, for instance, Three weeks before closing on that one, there was somebody, we had a million people in the room because of all the layers of financing. There was one person at the end of a table who wasn't talking. And I said, who are you? And he said, I'm the second deed of trust. I said, you're not saying much. 
And he said, well, I'm trying to decide whether or not to do the deal. I said, well, I thought, I thought you committed. And he goes, no, I committed to consider doing the deal. I said, we're closing in three weeks. <laughs> and he said, you know, I've decided I don't want to do the deal. And I said, terrific. When were you going to tell us? And he said, well, I knew everyone was getting together. I said, we're getting together to talk about closing. Closing. Yeah. So he, he walked and I actually showed up to closing short millions of dollars. I forgot. I think I forgot what the second trust was, but I, th I think it was probably eight million dollars. Eight or ten million dollars. And by the way, this was new. This was New Year's Eve. Because of the Dutch treaty, we had to close New Year's Eve. No later than. And lawyer turned to me and he said, Steve, uh, do you know, let's make up a number. Let's assume it was eight million dollars. He said, do you know you're short eight million dollars? I said, yeah. And he said, what are we doing here? Because we took up, we, we put one, one conference room was the first deed of trust. The other conference room was going to be the second and the participant. Yeah. And the third right. deed of trust was somewhere else. And seller was somewhere else. I mean, we took up like six conference rooms. And then at Danzansky and Dickey or Finley Cumble, whatever it was in those days. And I said, uh, I'm going to negotiate a second deed of trust of the next hour. He said, with whom? I said, the seller. And he said, does he know it? I said, not yet. <laughs> and he said, well, what are the terms? I said, 60 days. I said, in 60 days, I think, you know, I said, there's someone else who I think who's heard about what happened, who said, you know, I think it's a good deal, but I, I can't put it together in this amount of time. And I got with the seller and initially he was not happy. And I said, you know, Here's a letter from someone who I'm telling you, they're, they're, they're going to put up this money, mm -hmm. but it was impossible for them to pull it off. And we've got to close tonight because of your problems on capital gains. And we were going and going and finally, he, and he said, well, what about recordation tax and all that? I said, listen, if I can't pull this off later on and we have to unwind this transaction, I'll pay you. You know, it's our problem. And things started getting, you know, it's now it's 10 o'clock at night and these guys have till midnight. So the lawyer goes, what are you going to do? I said, give me the phone. So I called the airport and I said, I need a plane. And they said, where are you flying? I said, west. <laughs> and they said, what do you mean you're flying west? Where to? I said, I don't know, but we need to charter a plane and we have to start flying west so that it never gets to midnight. <laughs> So you took the whole closing team. <laughs> we never had to. Like an hour and 15 minutes later, we finished. But the lawyer said, you know, and of course, the people I called said, we have to file a flight plan. I said, Hawaii. I said, California, Hawaii. I don't know. Let, I, I said, let's see how far off we are, you know, and, I, and I'll give you a place. You know, what do you want me to tell you? So, yeah. And I remember, and ever since then, we do leave town now no later than uh, the, the 20th of December because <laughs> my wife was not a happy camper that night. No. But yeah, that, that one was unbelievable. I think we finished that deal around 10.30, quarter to 11 on midnight. Wow. On, uh, I'm sorry, on uh, New Year's Eve. Easy. But yeah, we cut that about as close as you could do it. 
But going back to on hiring somebody, so we need we need somebody who first thing is they understand the customer comes first. We want somebody who, if they make a mistake, doesn't lift up the carpet and put it under there. We want them coming in and saying, I made a mistake. I need help. Get out of this mistake. We like somebody who likes to work. You know, we'll, we'll pay you, but you got to want to work. You, you, you got to like, you have to enjoy working. And we want people who enjoy a team environment. Mm-hmm. And all of that's very important. Sure. And you'll uh, know that within probably 30 to 60 days after they're hired. Easily. Yeah. We, there's a tremendous amount of cross-selling that goes on here. And I might add that people don't even get compensated half the time for the cross-selling. Sure. Our leasing people bring in tons of construction. Uh, they'll bring in property management. Mm-hmm. Our construction guys are talking to somebody when they're building and saying, oh, you didn't hire a leasing person to do this thing? Mm-hmm. You know, we got the greatest leasing team in the world. Everybody really looks out for everybody else That's on great. this thing. And, and they're very, very good about that. And they love doing it. Let me uh, grab two more uh, issues that I can go to before I ask you a final question. One is uh, your other than work and family, which I assume are your pretty high priorities. You have a, an interest in, in giving back. Tell me a little bit about that, Steve, what you do. That actually goes to David's mother. When I was first made a vice president, Sandra Bender was around Mrs. Howard's wife? Yes. Mm-hmm. And she asked me out to lunch and said, tell me about your past. And I said, you know, we grew up modestly. Um, four of us, when my father was alive, lived in a one-bedroom apartment. My brother and I used to sleep in the kitchen. So we never had to go far for a snack. And, you know, then we moved to the suburbs when my mother remarried. And, you know, we talked it through the whole thing and uh, said, you're doing pretty well now. And I said, yeah, you know, and very thankful for it. She said, that's exactly why we're having lunch. She said, there are people out there who can use help. I want to put you on the board of the Heart Association. And I, you know, I think it's very important that you learn about giving back and charity and things like that. You know, she said, I think you're, you're going to go far in the company. How old were you at the time, Steve? I was young. I was, 30? I, I was the youngest vice president, I think, ever. Like About 30 or so? Yeah, probably 30, 31. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, I, I, I think it's a, it's a real important thing. And mm-hmm. she, Sandra was always president of our foundation. And she said, um, you know, I understand you have a pretty bright future here. And... She said, that's what I do for a living. I, I give away money. And she was on the board also. And uh, Was it inspiring to you? It was unbelievable. And this company adopts charities. There's a meeting going on in the next conference room with the Heart Association. Owen and I just agreed to chair the Hot Walk. We guaranteed that they would get $100,000 no matter what, just from Blake. The foundation just committed to give a million and a half dollars to the Heart Association over 10 years. You know, they guaranteed that to them. This company basically adopted Heart, and since then, obviously, um, I've been a pretty easy pinch. That's great. 
Let me ask you one final question and then um, talk a little bit about how people can reach out to you and uh, maybe find you. If, if you could put one statement on a billboard that a million people, millions of people would see, what would you say? What would that say? The, the answer is I would like to thank everybody in Washington for my success because success is not made by a person. It's made by the people that you interface with. So the answer is I would like to thank everybody in this town for, for, for my success because that's really where it's come from. It, you don't make your success. Other people allow you to be successful. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate your time today. Appreciate it. And uh, to reach to reach you, how can people reach out to you if they'd like to reach you? I think because of my travel habits, the easiest way would be through my assistant. And she can get to me and I'll be happy to answer questions or talk to anybody who needs wants to talk. Rachel Haywood, R. Haywood at BlakeReal.com. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate your time my, today. My pleasure.